Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and as it says right here on the paper, I am so happy to see everyone here tonight because it is a very, very special edition of our Writers Live series, and we'd like to thank everyone that's been involved in making this um, event possible tonight, uh, especially the Maryland Historical Society. And our special guest tonight has written a wonderful and beautiful book about another one of Baltimore's treasures, the Maryland Institute College of Art, or MICA. And like the Pratt Library, MICA has helped shape the great city that we know as Baltimore into what it is today. It has, and many of you know, it's consistently been named one of the best art and design colleges in the nation. And a number of notable artists have studied at MICA, including William Henry Reinhardt, Tamara Dobson, and Jeff Koons. Now, I must tell you, we're a little prejudiced here at the Pratt Library for a number of reasons about MICA. One of our favorite MICA graduates, and a person we are very proud of at the Pratt Library, is our graphic artist. In fact, we call him Graphic Jack, Jack Young, because he is behind all of the wonderful displays, exhibits, the windows uh, that you see, and the changing look and design of um, the Pratt Library that you'll see. So we want to thank Micah for giving us Jack Young. Thank you. <laughs> and just a little commercial. The Pratt's connection with the arts is very strong. We have a collection of, of course books and resources available for checkout. We also have digital collections from our website and now our new library app. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Foursquare, and there's another one. <laughs> We're there, we are social media. And we also have uh, beautiful sculptures and portraits, including uh, a sculpture of Billie Holiday, Edgar Allan Poe, the room we're in now, and Thurgood Marshall, and even our latest addition at the Southeast Library, Frank Zappa. <laughs> so, we invite you to come back to the Pratt and roam the halls here and enjoy the beautiful art we have and uh, really take advantage of the resources. Now, to introduce another reason why we're a little prejudiced about Micah here is because the person who is going to introduce our special guest um, has been a wonderful friend of the Pratt Library, and I have to say personally, a friend of mine, um, who has been a person that I could go to many times um, during my tenure here to talk about what it's like to take an organization and an institution that is beloved by so many people and take it into modern times and to help shape it and still be vital and still be asset to the organization and so whenever I would wonder about being an asset I would make an appointment with Mr. Fred Lazarus. Uh, it's not just because um, under his leadership the enrollment at MICA has more than doubled, the size of the campus has increased tenfold, the endowment, and a little jealousy there, has grown by more than 25 times. He has received numerous honors and awards, including the Baltimore City Mayor's Award, the National Art Education Association's Distinguished Service Award, and an honorary doctorate from Osaka University for the Arts in Japan. So please welcome a friend of the Pratt, a person that I'm pleased to call a friend, Mr. Fred Lazarus.
Good evening. It's really a, an honor for me to be here tonight, and I'm so grateful to the Pratt for hosting this event. It really means a great deal to me, and I know it means a great deal to Doug and, and Micah to be able to have this here. A special thanks to you, Carla, for all you've done to help us make this event possible, but really for what you've done to making Pratt such an important institution in, in Baltimore. The transformation of the library over the course of your tenure has been remarkable and wonderful, and we've all benefiting from it. I also want to thank also the Historical Society, who is our co-host for this event tonight. Uh, they not only have done a wonderful job in, in making this possible, but I can safely say that the publication that Doug is going to talk about would never have happened if we didn't have the partnership of the Historical Society and the Pratt in bringing all those wonderful resources and research to us. Uh, tonight, it's my pleasure to introduce one of my dear friends and colleagues for, since my, I came to Baltimore, Doug Frost. Um, Doug retired from his long-term position of head of our development office after some 40 years and asked if he could embark on a project which was to develop this history of MICA. When Doug asked me, luckily I had no idea what it was involved in this project, and I think luckily Doug had no idea where this journey was going to take him, because I'm not sure either one of us would have gone for, forward with it if we had known how much was going to be involved. I'm going to let Doug talk about the journey of the wonderful research and his great findings that he went through in the, along the way and what he discovered. But in taking this trip, he's not only done a great service to Micah, because for all intents and purposes, Micah had no known history. We had suffered from fires and other catastrophes, and we really didn't know our history. And Doug has basically created our history through the wonderful research he's done. He didn't make it up. He found it. Okay. <laughs> but also, he's made a huge contribution to the field of art education. Just this last week, I was with my colleagues who run the other art schools in the United States and Canada, all of whom I sent copies of the book. And they all commented on how much of our history was their history and how important it was to have this picture of what has happened in the evolution of art education in the United States at the college level. But the other third aspect of this book, which Doug, I think, will talk about in his remarks, is what a great insight it is into Baltimore's history. It's a different perspective on Baltimore's history. And certainly, the history of this college over its tenure is very much entwined with Baltimore. And I think that through this, we realized that this institution survived many, many crises, both local and national, and came back and made progress, reinvented itself many, many times over. But I also think it's very important to note that we could have never done it if Baltimore didn't have the benefit of some unbelievable civic leaders that came forward at different points in, in, in history. And the same thing is true of an organization like the library and every other wonderful cultural and educational institution in the city. We're all here today because of the leadership that Baltimore has had the benefit of over the years and continue to have the benefit of today. Through the great research and writing and through the images that Doug has been able to find and the information that he's put together, Doug has clearly told a really memorable story of Micah. It talked about, and also a story of Baltimore and our community and the relationship and the art education community as well. However, the story, as I mentioned earlier, could never have happened 
if he didn't have unbelievable support. And it's really appropriate that we should have this event the Pratt. The resources in this library are remarkable. I think Doug was constantly amazed at how many wonderful things they had here that helped us put our pieces to history together. And also, the same could be said of the Maryland Historical Society. Those two institutions really did provide the basis which allowed Doug to write this unbelievable book. And I also want to add one more comment, because Carla mentioned Jack's great work here. What really has brought this book to look the way it is and to be the way it is was the great partnership that we had with Pentagram and Abbott Miller's office here in Baltimore. They basically took wonderful content and made it into a beautiful book. And we're very appreciative of the incredible contribution they did. It's appropriate that an art school should have a beautiful book, but that book would never have been anything like what it is without Abbott and his office's work. Doug is the one who really orchestrated this. He's really the person that put all these pieces together, stayed with it for many, many years beyond what he thought would have been necessary. And really, it's his labor of love. It's taking his love of history, which has been a part of his job at MICA for many, many decades, and turning it into a great book. And it's my pleasure to give you the author, Doug Frost. I have piles of notes here, and I want to start with something I didn't have in the notes. Thank you, Fred. I did have Carla Hayden high on that list also, and many others. But some of the things you said, Fred, reminded me of really a very important point. When we were getting down to the when we'd gotten to the point where we thought there was some very interesting material, and we were running out of decades that were boring because they were interesting, we decided that we ought to take a look at what a book might look like if we were to do it. So we checked a number of institutional histories. And one after another, we said, this isn't a model for us. And we decided to kind of go our own way in our thinking and to see what happened as a result. I think far too many, for my taste, far too many institutions were so focused on themselves, on what was going on in their world and in, within their walls, that they never got outside and saw what was going on and related to it. For our book, it was easy because we were in Baltimore. And there was so much going on here of great significance and so many people of also real significance that it made it easier. I tried to define what I was thinking with the team that I worked with. And I, at one point, said, we are part of the fabric of America. We, Maryland Institute. We, Baltimore. And as the country grows and the region grows, we will grow. As we will grow, some of the other things will grow. We're part of that fabric. And I think that's a distinction because it really helped us, led us, in terms of what would we consider was part of our story and the great many things that we would have to leave outside that wall. Now to my notes, if I can find them. Um, I just want to say one of the wonderful and surprising things was how much material there really was. I had thought there wouldn't be very much. There had been the Great Fire of 1904, and our building, our library back in then, had, uh, had burned to the ground, and so there couldn't be very much around. But as uh, Carla had said, 
uh, there's a great deal in Pratt and also Maryland Historical Society. I'm going to tell you about how I got here, so to speak. When I met Bud, Bud Lee, president of Maryland Institute, in the spring of 1966, he gave me a tour of the Mount Royal Station, then in the midst of a transformation from a once elegant railroad terminal to an art school. This project had already received local uh, attention locally and nationally for being a pioneer in rescuing an important landmark. But artists in a railroad station? What an idea. When I began giving tours as vice president of development, visitors were always amazed at something, such as the celebrities who had passed through the waiting room station, U.S. presidents, Buffalo Bill, the queen of, a, of Romania, or the, or the sculpture studios then being created at that very moment in the station, or the fact that, Mar Mar that Margaret Mead was coming to give a lecture that night. I asked Bud if there was a book or booklet about the history of the station and the institute itself. He said no, but there was a paragraph in the latest catalog that mentioned the great fire, Andrew Carnegie, and perhaps Lincoln. Maybe someday there would be a book, he said. That someday came earlier this year when we launched Making History, Making Art, a 300-page volume with some 600 images and appendix and so forth. This book was the product of many hands, including those of our hosts, which I've already mentioned, and whose resources they so generally have made available. Assembling the narrative gave us a greater understanding of how we got here and what the, how we got from the Maryland Institute for the Promotion of the Mechanic Arts, that was the original name, mouthful, to MICA, nice and short and sweet. Thank you for your interest and in this opportunity to share with you some of the findings. Mind you, taking a journey of 185 years in less than an hour can introduce you to the story, but it is not the same as discovering it yourself. That's why we wrote the book. It now belongs to Baltimore and to each of you. Shall we get started? Fasten your seatbelts. We're going to rev it up here a little bit. A hundred years ago, the land next to Corpus Christi was just an empty lot. In the course of the narrative, you will learn how it was that Maryland Institute came to be on this site. From Bunting Center, you could see a bit of the Fox Building, a former shoe, uh, former shoe factory, and on the left of your screen, and the grassy quad named Cohen Plaza. Straight ahead, Brown Center. Now in its eighth year, it is not by chance that the building Ed and Sylvia Brown built is directly across Mount Royal from the building of another great philanthropist, Andrew Carnegie. In the distance, you can see the lights downtown around the Inner Harbor. Let's go down there now and see what was going on 185 years ago. As John Latrobe stood on Federal Hill and looked across the harbor spread out before him, he saw the city of Baltimore with a population of over 100,000 people, the fastest growing city in the country, third largest behind New York and Philadelphia. The most significant things in this picture were not the host of sailboats in the busy harbor, not George Washington Monument, but the steamboats, proof the industrial age had arrived. 22-year-old John H.B. Latrobe placed a notice in the Baltimore Gazette inviting all who were interested in the establishment of the Maryland Institute to attend a public meeting on November 2nd, 1825. 
the idea of a new kind of educational program that would train young men for careers in this new industrial age was enthusiastically embraced by leading citizens, including Latrobe's dear friend, Fielding Lucas, entrepreneur and publisher. Lucas's son, George, would later create an important collection of art, ultimately becoming a significant cultural contribution to Maryland Institute, the city of Baltimore, Baltimore Museum of Art, Walter's Art Museum, and beyond. Latrobe took charge of securing space for Maryland Institute in the Antheneum, located where Mercy Hospital is today. Space left by the Apprentice Society, which was at that very moment dissolving. The Apprentice system, which went back hundreds of years, was outmoded. The new day belonged to Mechanics Institutes. Although the main thrust of the educational program was technical, directly related to inventions, machines, industrial drawing, the fine arts were taught at Maryland Institute from the very start. The daughter of the most famous American artist of the day, Thomas Sully, and two Harvard professors were among those who enrolled in Samuel Smith's painting class in the fall of 1826. In addition to the Mechanics Institute model, Maryland Institute's leaders took a page out of the American Lyceum book. This new movement in America focused on lectures delivered by a wide range of individuals, among them Noah Webster, who spoke about his new American Dictionary of the English Language, a publication that was quite controversial in 1831 because it included all words. Everything seemed to be on course until the bank panic in the mid-1830s. Many lost their life savings. A mob, venting its anger, sent, set several establishment structures ablaze, including the Athenaeum, which burned to the ground. A major economic depression followed, and Maryland Institute was out of business for 12 and a half years. When the economy finally turned around, city leaders wasted no time reestablishing Maryland Institute, only this time bigger and better. The Great Hall was huge, longer than a football field, the largest clear space in America, said the Scientific American. It could hold over 6,000 people. Many well-known figures delivered lectures there over the years, including Anna Dickinson, temperance leader, suffragette, abolitionist, Horace Greeley, famous editor of the Herald Tribune and later a candidate for president of the United States, and Edward Everett, president of Harvard, who gave a two-and-a-half-hour oration at Gettysburg the same day Lincoln delivered his brief address there. Annual exhibitions in the Great Hall featured hundreds of entries from the latest printing presses to pocket watches and from home sewing machine to the newfangled typewriter. One year, Mr. Enoch Pratt and Johns Hopkins served as judges at the annual exhibition, a real task since there were over 50 categories and often hundreds of items in each. Thousands filled the great hall where the aroma of sweets, tobacco, liquors, and music filled the air, steam, steam presses clanging in the background. Half-hour addresses were not unknown. Always looking for ways to broaden its base, the board decided to incorporate a new program for women in fine and applied arts. One board member wanted, warned there could be an, an upheaval among the sexes if men and women were in the same building. Another responded, do for your daughters what you do for your sons. The board committee supported the plan unanimously. Launched in 1854, well ahead of many other institutions, the female department was an immediate success and a turning point in Maryland Institute's history. 
In fact, the men were so impressed with the women's program that they demanded one exactly like it. Ten years later, it was co-ed. The Great Hall was always active. For example, there were four U.S. presidential conventions that decade. Delegates from 24 states. The New York Times, a new publication, sent a reporter who filed an interesting story. Late one night, my assistant, Amy Hunter, uh, checked Google for the fun of it and found that the story the reporter had filed in 1851 had given us insights we had not had. It was digitized. And it was set up in the hall. There were cannons going off. There were people running. The reporter said, hither and thither. They the, the keep things quiet in this block. They put tan bark on the cobblestones around them to soften the, uh, the iron wheels on cobblestones. Inside the hall, there was bunting draped over the balconies. Uh, there was a picture at full length of George Washington at one end of the hall and Henry, Henry Clay, who had just died, at the other. It was an exciting place to be. Glory, hallelujah, gentlemen, we are saved, Enoch Pratt famously declared when federal troops marched into Baltimore. As the map shows, Maryland Institute's Great Hall was not far from the site where the first blood of the Civil War was shed. The Great Hall became a temporary hospital treating 700 soldiers wounded at Antietam. It was also in the Great Hall that Lincoln gave a speech on April 18, 1864 at the sanitary fair forerunner of the Red Cross. It is reproduced in full in Making History, Making Art. You'll see me bring up that point every once in a while in case you are interested in the book. The people he brought with him to that event may surprise you. He brought some people that might surprise you. At the outset of my remarks, I mentioned that John H. B. Latrobe, John H. B. Latrobe's name, as you have already heard, he was the founder of the Institute, as well as many other initiatives over his long life, including the creation of the Maryland Historical Society in 1844. Latrobe was truly a remarkable guy, lawyer, inventor, painter, author, and more. I've always been grateful to Jeff Corman for bringing him to our attention. I could not imagine a more dynamic period than the four decades between 1825 and 1865, but the America that existed before the Civil War was no more. Baltimore, like many other American cities, had become urban, industrialized. We could feel the difference as we researched the next equally interesting 40 years. At first, there was slow, steady descent into a serious depression. Some clearly felt that Maryland Institute's future was uncertain. Spirits rose with the national celebration of the country's 100th anniversary, the centennial in 1876 in Philadelphia. That event was a magnet that drew crowds in unprecedented numbers and energized the nation. The throngs outside the exhibition hall were proof of the rising tide of interest in the visual arts. The galleries were packed. Several other art schools and museums sprang up in this decade, 50 years after Maryland Institute had started. In our research, we were pleased to find that Maryland Institute students and faculty exhibited their work at this national event, which attracted 10 million people, 25% of the country's population at the time. The last quarter of the 19th century was the heart of the Gilded Age. One of the most positive outcomes was an increase in philanthropy. Several of the country's most prominent philanthropists in the 19th century were right here in Baltimore, each of whom 
supported the Maryland Institute, by the way. A.S. Abel, John Garrett, Johns Hopkins, George Peabody, Enoch Pratt, William T. Walters. It seemed that it was never a dull moment. In the last few years of the century, there were three notable events. At the national level, the Supreme Court decision that sanctioned the concept of separate but equal, which would stain the nation for the next 50 years. In Baltimore, the Enoch Pratt Free Library established in 1886. A statement that Enoch Pratt made is worth repeating. Quote, my library, he said, shall be for all, rich and poor, without distinction of race or color, who, when properly, properly accredited, can take out the books if they will handle them carefully and return them. End of quote. This has guided the library for 125 years, an institution that has been studied and widely imitated throughout the country. The third notable event in the final days of the 1890s was the establishment of the Maryland Institute's Reinhardt School of Sculpture in 1896, the first program of its kind in the country. A great tragedy followed. The Great Fire of 1904, which destroyed some 1,500 buildings, including Maryland Institute's Great Hall. Governor Warfield, looking ahead, said the fire was actually a blessing in disguise for the Maryland Institute. It had taken the Institute 12 years to recover from the fire that destroyed the Antheneum in 1835. This time, plans to reestablish the Maryland Institute led to board chair John M. Carter's were underway 12 hours later. In 12 days, classes resumed in temporary facilities, and a national design competition for a new building began. The support from the city and state, together with a gift of land from the Jenkins family, made an important contribution, but the eye-opening grant was Andrew Carnegie's $263,000, which represented over half the cost of the new building. Maryland Institute proudly displayed four medallions on the facade of the new main building that recognized the principal contributors. In addition to Carnegie and Jenkins, the city of Baltimore and state of Maryland. It seemed as if the whole city cheered when people saw the completed vision at the dedication ceremony of the main building in November 1908. The open house that day attracted hundreds of people. The book gives a wonderful account of going through the building and what you could see, what, would you, what you would see. The new century began with lots, 20th century, the new century began with lots of challenges and surprises ahead for the country as well as Maryland Institute. In its new location on Bolton Hill, the rooftops, the same today as they were in 1908, reflected the neighborhood's aspiration and stability. People often ask if we found any surprises during our research. Yes, and the number of them were, and a number of them were in the first two or three decades of the 20th century. For example, on May 10, 1910, the board learned via a note from Henry Walters that Maryland Institute would be rece receiving the first installment of prints, drawings, paintings, and sculpture from the late George Lucas's art collection this Friday. This Friday. Thousands of items this Friday. Henry Walters loved to surprise people. There were stories within stories. Looking for some good World War I Red Cross posters to provide color, I checked the internet and found several in the collection of an alum, well known in the field of ephemera. He'd be glad to give us some, he said, but he could do better than that. 
he had a poster that actually had been created in a class at MICA in 1917. He drove down from Pennsylvania and delivered that poster to us. We have it in the archives now. Speaking of Kathy, there was a day that Kathy came into, she's the senior um, Decker, Decker Library, senior reference librarian. She came into my office and said, here are quite a few clippings from the past you may want to look at. Well, there were 600 pages. There were five clippings a page. That totals 3,000 articles of various sizes. From this, all this, we found two tiny stories. One was about Matisse's solo show at Micah in 1923. We didn't know that. The second was a clipping dated July 1943, which profiled a Maryland, a Maryland student, the spitting image of Rosie the Riveter. I have wrote down here. This is what the newspaper said. It's an article about this long. A girl student starts work at night on the graveyard shift at the Martin plant, aircraft plant. At 7 a.m., she takes off her overalls, gets a ride to Mar Maryland Institute where she is a majoring in fashion. It's very much like the story of, of you know, Charlie Costa. From the collection of Pratt Library, we have included a poster from World War II, You Buy Em, We Fly Em, designed by a Mica father-son team. The government printed 1.5 million of these. Between the wars was the Great Depression. Maryland Institute alumnus Aaron Sofer cap captured the essence of that period with drawings, such as the man digging for food in a garbage can. Each period has its own character. This was particularly evident in the 1920s. The Institute yearbooks recorded scenes of the Roaring Twenties at MICA, including flappers on the front steps of the main building, fraternities and sororities, the Ouija board created by a MICA alum, Fate of Lights, the, the annual Betty and Bill can tell you all about that, the annual costume ball and fundraiser, the, the unveiling of the spectacular mur mural in the court marking Maryland Institute's 100th anniversary of 1925. Controversial art movements were common across the country and in Baltimore. At the Institute, aesthetic differences between the modern movement and the neoclassical, led by director Hans Schuller escalated to art wars on campus that made their way to the Baltimore Sun. Works by the Ashcan School of Realists were acceptable to director Schuller, but works by the Conecester's friend Henri Matisse were decidedly not. Indeed, Schuller actually removed paintings he did not like from the gallery walls. Um, in, the advent of the, in the advent of abstract expressionism, that kept the pot boiling. The Schulers eventually split off from Maryland Institute and started their own school a few blocks up Charles Street. We're good friends with them to these days. There are surprises and then there are amazing moments. Those of us combing through annual reports and newsletters and so on were stunned when we came across a 1935 article by Sund art critic A.D. Emmert, a traveling show about the horrors of lynching organized by the NAACP and College Art Association in New York, was installed in the Maryland Institute's main building for two weeks. The um, 
Art, the sponsors included George Gershwin, Dorothy Parker, Pearl S. Buck, Edna St. Vincent Millay, and Sherwood Anderson. Artists included George Bellows, Thomas Hart Benton, Noguchi, and Reginald Marsh. They all had works in this. Marsh made a print of a young girl being held aloft by an older woman. Woman. The caption was, it was her first lynching. The scheduled New York gallery open was canceled at the last moment. If it was controversial in New York City, Sydney, wouldn't it also be more conservative in Baltimore? M. Art, the art critic, enthusiastically welcomed the exhibit at Maryland Institute and showered praise upon the school for mounting it. What did I do, John? John knows everything over there. <laughs> I, I guess. Anyway. Maryland Institute did not thrive in the immediate post-war period. The institution treaded water for a decade and a half. The main building had deteriorated. Enrollment had shrunk. After a sustained search, the board chose a painter from Yale, Eugene Leake, who became president in 1961. Leake navigated the 1960s and early 70s with skill and a little luck. A block down from the main building was the B&O Mount Royal Station, vacant and for sale. This was exactly what Leake needed for the fine arts program. This landmark, built in the 1890s, presented a golden opportunity to take Maryland Institute to a new level. The concept of an art school in a railroad station captured attention in Baltimore, then New York, and the nation. Preservationists, city planners, architects, members of Congress, the New York Times, all hailed this pioneer, pioneering effort, a distinct contrast to the demolition of New York's Penn Station a few years earlier. These are some of the images from the opening days of the, of the station well into the 1960s. The transformation of the, of the station was not the only source of excitement. A grant of a quarter of a million dollars from the Hofberger Foundation, the largest gift the college received since Andrew Carnegie's 60 years earlier, made a significant impact. This was accompanied by the appointment of New York Abstract Expressionist Grace Hardigan, who became director of the new graduate program, the Hofberger School of Painting. Visiting artists, poets, and lecturers from New York were frequently on campus. Of course, the 1960s were not the 60s until the crew cuts left over from the 50s became long hair and blue jeans replaced khakis. Maryland Institute students expressed themselves in many ways, but were not known for burning flags or draft guards. Grace told me from her hospital bed about the afternoon her students occupied the president's office for about five minutes. When they arrived and made their intentions known, Leake stood up, said, be my guest, and walked out. After meeting no resistance, the students just looked at each other, shrugged their shoulders, and walked back, to, wandered back to their studios. This was a far cry from what was going on at Berkeley and Columbia. Some are, were not life and death issues. Others were. It was the reaction to the death of Martin Luther King in April 1968 that struck home most of all. Billowing smoke from fires along North Avenue, visible from the president's office as army trucks drove down Mount Royal Avenue, generated a lasting image. Sal Scarpetta's lettering on the station roof, students mourn death of Dr. Martin Luther King, said what Micah felt. 
important changes took place at MICA that decade, including the appointment of women and African Americans to the Board of Trustees for the first time. The next president of Maryland Institute would significantly broaden and deepen those commitments. Budley stepped down as president in 1974 to devote himself to painting. For the next nearly two and a half decades, he painted landscapes largely in the rolling hills of of Maryland. Meanwhile, the institution had become fully accredited and was now on the map. This decade of exploring new frontiers led students to unpredictable directions. Some, for example, collaborated on constructing a giant peanut butter sandwich with the goal of entering the popular Guinness Book of World Records. Others decided to explore the boundaries of inflatable art, which has become of interest to students and faculty once again this year, 40 years later. You never know what will come next around Micah. Part five, becoming the leader. From 1825 to 1978, Maryland Institute evolved from a regional mechanics institute to a nationally respected college of art best known for its fine arts and art education programs. By the last quarter of the 20th century, Maryland Institute was poised to take the next step to become an international leader in the education of artists and to make an even larger contribution to Baltimore, not just physically, but through the development of an award-winning campus, but also as a catalyst for the burgeoning arts community. It would turn out to be one of the most dynamic periods in the institution's 185-year history. The board broke from past traditions by appointing not an artist, but a Harvard MBA named Fred Lazarus, age 36, who anticipated serving as head of the institute for between three and five years. His credentials included service in the formative years of the Peace Corps and then a senior position in the National Endowment for the Arts, which gave him a perspective on the valuable role the arts and artists play in America. During his interview with MICA's Board of Trustees in August 1978, Lazarus said, for MICA to become a great art college, Baltimore must become a great city for artists. Lazarus made it clear that building this relationship was high on his agenda. What was not a change from the past were the challenges that faced the new president, an insufficient endowment and the need for more space, academic, administrative, and now residential, to house the growing number of U.S. and international students. If it was Leek's luck to secure the station in order to expand programs and enrollment, a similar story took place a dozen years later. It was Lazarus's luck that across Mount Royal Avenue from the president's office was the former shoe factory, now vacant, with 50% more space than the main building. Trustees jumped at this opportunity to secure the structure for $226,000, though one or two thought the price was too high. The ribbon-cutting ceremony at the Fox Building in September 1981, which included Hazel Fox, her nephew and trustee, Alonzo G. Decker, former chair of Black & Decker, Governor Harry Hughes and Fred Lazarus, marked the beginning of creating a campus for the college's future. Al, George, Bob Meyerhoff, and Fred stand in front of the former shoe factory before the renovation began. They would lead the fundraising program over the next few decades. Studio space was, was key, but so was space for student housing. If the college hoped to attract applicants from an increasingly wider geographical area, Once more, Maryland Institute was fortunate this time because there was a large vacant lot in Bolton Hill near the campus that could become an asset 
for both town and gown. Working together, two parties produced a solution that endures to this day. They named the project the Commons. For the future, Micah needed a literal and figurative roadmap to guide the college's development. In the year 2000, we announced the plan for the 21st century and for formally adopted the acronym of MICA, which I've been using all night. But this is when you should have started it, right in 1978 or so. MICA's reputation spread, and as it did, and enrollment increased sharply, existing facilities began to burst at the seams. The college acquired the former AAA building named Bunting Center in honor of George Bunting. This made it possible for the Decker Library to expand along with studio classes and programs in the humanities. Throughout Lazarus's leadership, community was always a priority. It took different forms, from working with young people in various parts of Baltimore to collaborating with schools, museums, and other higher educational institutions. Lazarus sought a balance between Micah's role in his own backyard and the global village. International programs provided an important dimension as students from scores of countries became a part of Micah. The advent of new technologies was a phenomenon that virtually influenced the entire world. At Micah, that growth began in the mid-1990s when Ray Allen became vice president for academic affairs and dean. He shouted from the rooftops, the digital revolution is the most exciting thing for artists since the Renaissance. We heard that a lot, didn't we, Fred? At, the, at long last, but he was right. At long last, design became a strong suit at the college, the equal of MICA's excellent fine arts and art education programs. Concurrently, humanities and liberal arts became dynamic components. The exhibition program expanded and career development programs thrived with student life with an emphasis on leadership development. It became vibrant. Just as the Industrial Age owned the 19th century, globalization and the digital age shaped the future. During the last part of the 20th century and into the 21st, the invention of new technologies presented new opportunities for artists. John H.B. Latrobe's personal motto, forward, took on renewed meaning as the 20th century dawned. Bolton Hill residents urged Micah to acquire the former women's hospital a block away from the main building and convert it into student housing as the college had done with the commons. Robert and Jane Meyerhoff House became an integral part of the campus in 2002. Simultaneously, Maryland Institute broke ground for a new academic building to accommodate the program growth. Called the Brown Center, Washington Post said it was the most significant new building in the region in the past 30 years. The Landscape Cohen Plaza and Bunting Center completed the picture. Some 44,000 people attended events in Brown Center's Falvey Hall its first two years, an, an impressive number akin to what the Great Hall had once attracted. Philanthropy at Maryland Institute, which began in the 1850s, grew through the decades, rising step by step to new heights. Making history, making art traces the progress that took place over time. Maryland Institute developed plans that would bring the college into a broader global conversation, eventually administering more international programs than any other art college, thus enriching the curriculum and the Maryland Institute experience. Students from scores of countries flocked to Baltimore. The Fudo Mayo Project is one example of engagement on this front. Another, also in Asia, is the Wall of Water, created by MICA alumna Mary Miss for the Beijing Olympics in 2008. Symbolically, the red and white tent says it all. 
community engagement to, grew to embrace more activities in the city. They developed on two levels, on a hands-on classroom level and as a cultural resource. When Lazarus learned that MICA students on their own initiative and with their own money were purchasing art supplies in order to teach neighborhood kids, he established a president's fund for community initiatives with, which helped further cultivate the young people's interest and personal growth. Through the formation of partnerships, a series of productive regional and national programs were created, often called simply CAP, Community Arts Partnership. That, too, grew at an impressive rate. Links with Johns Hopkins and Bloomberg School of Public Health focused on health and safety issues in East Baltimore neighborhoods. Micah's involvement increased with the acquisition of a facility in the midst of what of that area called Micah Place. Looking ahead to the Art College of the Future, a transformational gift from the Bunting family recently provided a commitment of $10 million to endow the programs that would strengthen the fabric of the city and promote thinking in new directions. Graduate programs focused on these matters shall be located in the Studio Center in the Station North Arts Entertainment District when renovations are complete. Micah was a stakeholder. Throughout this period, Micah also deepened his role as a cultural resource for the larger community. Is Freddie still here? Good. This is for you, Freddie. <laughs> We're almost at the end. Upon President Hazarus's arrival in 1978, he had encouraged the creation of two programs that would excite both artists and the general public. One, Maryland Art Place, MAP, an alternative ga gallery implemented by Marianne Mears and Freddie Gross long before Freddie became chair of MICA's Board of Trustees. Second, Artscape, a community-wide arts festival, now the largest free arts festival in the country, routinely attracting 350,000 people or more annually. Both programs celebrated their 30th year in 2011. Had Baltimore become a great city for artists? This past summer, the press in Baltimore, D.C., and other cities gave a, a resounding yes. I asked a friend and historian, Bill Evans, who'd been a member of our team for quite a while, and many of you may know, if he'd be willing to join me in writing an epilogue for the book. Bill brought his usual good nature and wealth of knowledge to the task. These were the thoughts we wrote together. Quote, Michael will continue to engage the community in ways that uniquely touch the lives of people across a broad spectrum. The world will be ever-changing, and Micah, too, will evolve. The courage to change dramatically if necessary has marked the Institute's entire history. The ability to adapt and adopt has enabled Micah to survive when almost all other institutions of its kind fell by the wayside or were absorbed by larger entities. To persist and succeed through fires, financial panics, and the changing tastes of the times, and to emerge as a distinctive leader. This is Maryland Institute's legacy. This is also its future. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, it's a great honor to be here tonight uh, to participate in this in this. Uh, I guess it's the second launch, huh? Uh, 
or yeah, in any case, the second launch of the book, yes. And um, in any case, uh, I know what a daunting achievement this is because we're not only talking about history, we're talking about art, we're talking about architecture, we're talking about the uh, higher institutions in this country and how they developed, and uh, it's turned into, a, 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 for me, a, a real milestone um, because I'm, I'm a new kid in the neighborhood, and uh, to have this kind of thing available to you to really look at and, uh, and admire, and to understand um, this cluster, this neighborhood of cultural institutions that's been around here for almost two centuries, is, um, it, it's humbling, to say the least. Um, I've been studying the War of 1812, and, uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's one of those uh, ill-conceived wars that the America got into that um, it almost lost everything in the process, but it came out of the war with this incredible burst of energy, and uh, the result is here tonight. Um, and you see the same characters over and over again who uh, created these institutions. Uh, um, John H.B. Latrobe was, uh, had his fingers all over the Maryland Historical Society as well. We, we do suffer from a little bit of antiquity envy because uh, you're, what, 18 years older than we are, and... Um, so, um, in any case, these all came along at the same time. And if you go to uh, one exhibition this, this year, you should go to the Smithsonian, to the National um, Gallery of American Art, and um, see the Hall of Wonders exhibit, because you'll get some idea of the energy that was going on in America after the War of 1812. It's really amazing. And that's what this all was a result of. So, it's my job here tonight to... Um, to um, entertain questions and uh, and get Doug to uh, answer whatever questions you might have about this whole thing. But I feel so strongly that this great achievement was a result of a partnership that um, has been going on for a long time. Uh, it wouldn't have been possible with the kind of uh, facilities and, and the incredible amounts of material that uh, all these institutions have that they've gained uh, all this experience over the years in these wonderful collections. So. Um, I think you drew on that, and uh, that really made this book special. So without further ado, we'll take questions. the uh, Maryland Historical Society, although I have a long history with the place, um, for about 18 months. And it's been Christmas practically every day there. I mean, it's just wonderful. There's just so much to see and so much to work with. There were many surprises along the way. People seem to like surprises. I don't have my notes anymore, so But there, there really is a lot. And I emotion so much is that if you Side. Uh, rarely had any real frustrations. It was always, what's next? What's next? That kind of thing. There was a, a kind of a sense of, I mean, Vicky, I'm Vicky, 
you know, you call her up and say, Vicky, what we found today, this is just so great. Fred was great at responding to that, although he was a pretty busy guy, I assume he broke into it. And uh, so I do think it does make, and the city, I mean, getting to know the different parts of the city, we all have some we know well and some we don't know so well. And I think that this can break through it. Can, as I was saying, this is our book, not mine. Just want to briefly mention that we've all benefited too from Mike graduates. Um, we have Jenny Peretti here tonight, and uh, she's one of our uh, photographic curators. And uh, and you know, they're just she's just one of many that have benefited from these institutions, and also from uh, Micah. We have a question way in the back. I hope I can hear it. Do you um, know what the makeup of the student body was in any given period? I mean, did they call from uh, the immigrant population? Um, you know, were they primarily the upper crust, um, you know, children of the upper crust, or, you know, was it a combination, or? Well, I tried to keep uh, track of that pretty carefully. We had amazing annual reports, often 65 pages long, type was about six point. Uh, but they, they stuffed a lot in there, and there was a, lots of different committees, uh, in, a committee on inventions, for example, which gradually phased out for various reasons, but there's, so there's a lot of information. I would always look for those sorts of numbers about what kind of, you know, one interesting one to me, this has to do with Jim Crow, basically, uh, was when an African-American young man came to the Maryland Institute in 1891, years important, <coughs> he was welcome, he was fine, everything was great, he graduated with honors four years later. But four years later, Jim Crow in the peak was, was 1896 in this country, was that much closer to, to that kind of thinking. And it made a terrible time. Now, here's what happened on the numbers. The men's enrollment went like this. The women's enrollment went like this. It was the guys who <coughs> in terms of reaction to this. Now, I didn't catch all the questions you had, but I thought this was just kind of an interesting little picture of what was going on. Now, we had the women's program. The women's program, there were none. We started with none. Then the first year, it's seven. Five years later, we had 100. Now, that growth is pretty dissipated, and it was so important. I think it was one of the most, if not the most important turning point in Michael's history, certainly one of the top three, because as we will mostly us agree, women are important. <laughs> and we needed to have, that was good. It was, made sense. And the women loved the program, and they designed their own program. The men did not design that. The men, men saw it a couple of years later, and they said, we want something like that. So it wasn't what happened in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, the Franklin Institute, which is a great institution, a year older than the Maryland Institute, um, they, in a sense, bought a women's club, a women's group that was very interested in applied and fine arts and made it part of the Franklin Institute. Well, the cultures didn't mix. They didn't last very long together. But Maryland Institute, we built it like this and got <coughs> integrated along the way. And we were head of uh, Cooper Union, for example. Mm -hmm. um, when, did the, when did the classes become coy? Well, it was 10 years after <coughs> that, so it was probably um, 1872. Oh, okay. Questions? Yeah. Um, it sounds like the man who created the school 
put out an ad in the newspaper, you said, for an industrial institute. So was that not an art school then from the beginning? Well, it's very complicated. It really is. It's hard to follow. These things were very mixed up. There wasn't a, the, the disciplines that we have come to know of this, this, this. I think we're blurring the edges again now, these days, between disciplines. But at that time, so it was kind of blurred. You had the architects, and you had these young men who were just become members, and you have others who were in the manufacturing. It was a real mix. Uh, so... Um, it was very vocational. It was very vocational, yeah, it was. And it was industrial. It was the Industrial Revolution. I mean, that was so exciting. I mean, it just started with all these promises, the beliefs of what the future would be about. And, but, if you notice, to mention the, in the fall of 1826, well, we got established in late 1825. And there we are in the fall of 86. And we had the class with the person who was the best-known artist in America. Uh, and all the way through, if you go look, and you go through the different periods, you will see that the art is rising. For example, there's industrial exhibitions, which were amazing in that hall that was, you know, football field. Um, they, that, um, no, I was going to say, um, I'm sorry, I just lost this one. With the industrial. Well, you, what you had under it was about the, yeah, it was about the, the, the women got, they started to exhibit their own things in the hall. So they're in the corner over there. Well, these big machines are going on and people are doing it. And then, so what happened was that people, more and more people were going to see what the women had painted. And the board said, well, we didn't expect this. We didn't even think they'd get into painting. Drawing should be enough. Well, they didn't listen. <laughs> there you have this, well, at the same time, this is 1850 or so, the, the Hudson River School was in right up there. And their work was in, was lent to us by Walters. And it was on display along with all this other stuff. I mean, it was a real mix and very, you know, exciting that way. Some of those, I say one, some of the uh, speeches, addresses were half an hour. I know one that was two hours long. And it was early in the reestablishment of Brown Institute. And an important speaker, he was a novelist, everybody knew he was very smart. And he just talked and talked and talked. Mm-hmm. Imagine two hours? Uh, so we can do that too. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we're getting close to it. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions? One quick question. Were there controversies over women being included in life classes in the 1870s? It's a good question. Uh, there was. Um, now, I don't know about each year or during even half years, but um, there was. And it was a, they did what they called mixed classes. So there were new models that women mm-hmm. yeah. Yes, I don't know. Yes, 1890s, around in there. Yes, right, right. We had our eye on what they were doing all the time. They got into sketching before it became a whole program, sketching. Um, so there were these... I talked with Doreen about this, because I was wondering if Brown Institute was representative of what we were doing, these things we're talking about. Was it representative of what was going on, or were we... Not with a field, but were we someplace else? Said, she said, it's the same thing. You all are the same, is kind of what she said. All the art schools are doing the same thing. Give or take. So, yes, Paula. Do you know how many students are like that these days? I don't remember. I mean, it seems like a much smaller number when I left. I think Mary Ann can handle that one. Actually, we put a faculty out there. I think it's Fred correct me, 1890. 
1,800 and 300 graduate students, 300, and 1,800 under, undergraduates from 45 countries. Yeah. Well, thank you, Doug, and uh, thank you, Michael, for this. Thank you. Thank you.